Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Isabel, thank you so much for reading that uh, long reading. It is a a remarkable encounter, isn't it? Uh, Do keep your Bibles open as we look at it, uh, John chapter 9. And let's pray for God's help as we turn to it together now. We just read these words of Jesus. He said, I am the light of the world. And Father, we would dare to pray this morning that you would open our eyes, we pray. Amen. When I was eight, my family went on a camping holiday to uh, just outside Paris. We had a lovely week exploring the city and eating lots of baguettes. And uh, towards the end of the week, the real kind of climax of the whole week was a visit to the Louvre Museum. And my mom was telling us about how amazing the whole uh, place would be. And the highlight of the exhibition was the Mona Lisa, which was on display at that time. And as we went around the gallery, we were being sort of told how amazing the final room would be with the Mona Lisa there in front of us, um, perhaps the most famous painting in the world. And so we rushed around the museum, getting all excited about what we'd seen. We got into the final room, and there were crowds of people all gathered around the far end of the museum uh, display. And I managed to push my way to the front of the crowds. And there before me on the wall... She was hanging there. And I have to say, I was utterly disappointed. (laughs) To my eight-year-old eye, it was a rather small painting, to be honest. Um, I couldn't see anything particularly special about a rather plain-looking face looking down on me. And I couldn't understand the hype. People were talking in hushed voices all around me in awe of this masterpiece. And I just couldn't see it. This morning, as we turn to John 9, we see something similar happening. We're not looking at a painting, but rather a person. In our reading, various people encounter and engage with Jesus. And the longer they look at Jesus, the more divided the response becomes. One person in particular, as he looks, is drawn in and he sees at deeper and deeper levels. And he sees beauty and wonder 
Others, they look and engage, and all they see, well, they see nothing. They see simply a plain man making extraordinary claims that they don't believe. How is this possible? How is it possible for rational, thinking, intelligent people to engage with the very same person and end up with such divided responses? It happened back in John 9. It still happens today. Even this morning, there'll be many here, I guess, as we look at John 9 and we look at Jesus and our vision is filled with beauty and wonder again at the light of the world. But there will be others, I guess, who engage with John 9 and we are utterly bored, looking forward to lunch and not much else. And so that's our question this morning. How is it possible that people can be so divided about Jesus? And this is no academic question. You see, it doesn't really matter if I like the Mona Lisa painting or not. It doesn't really change my life. I can still live a perfectly happy, fulfilled life even if I don't understand why she is so impressive. But Jesus walks onto the world stage and makes the most remarkable claim that if true, changes everything. I just read it a moment ago, verse five. Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is an extraordinary thing for anyone to say. In the previous chapter, John 9, Jesus explains a bit more about what he means. He says in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. And we need light, don't we, to live life in this world. It is just too confusing and messed up not to have light. And we know, don't we, that no amount of money deep down inside will, 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 will work, will make life work for us, give us a fulfilled life. We know that no amount of careful planning and organizing will protect us from surprise and pain. Uh, just think of those poor people yesterday queuing up at a traffic light, going about their lives, and then literally out of the blue, the jet descends in an instant, seven people dead. You see, life is like that. It is confusing and surprising. We need light. And Jesus says, I am the light of life. If you want to understand what this world is about, how to live a fruitful, successful, meaningful life, you have to come to me, says Jesus. You will find it nowhere else. And so what we see as we look at Jesus this morning matters a very great deal Indeed. Well, our chapter begins as Jesus walks by a man born blind. Uh, there was a school of thought around that if you experienced um, this kind of suffering, then there must be some kind of sin around somewhere, yourself or your parents. That's behind the disciples' question in verse 2. But Jesus rejects that view of the world. He says instead, verse 3, But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In all the complexities and sorrows of living in a broken and painful world, Jesus says, watch me work. I I can do something here. I've got the power. And just as an aside, can I say often suffering leaves us completely baffled? 
We don't know why it comes. It often seems to come in, in ways that are so unfair. It comes to loads, to, to some people, and to others seem to escape it completely. We don't often know why. But if Jesus is the light of the world, he says, I can work with your suffering. I can turn it into something wonderful. What he does next is remarkable. He, he gets to work. Verse 6, he makes some mud uh, into paste by spitting on it. He spreads it over the man, man's eyes. And then verse 7, go, he's told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, don't miss how big this is. Uh, looking back over my childhood, there are times when I made some pretty poor decisions. Uh, one such moment that sticks in my mind was when I was four and I found myself alone in the sitting room with a pack of chewing gum. Actually, it was bubble gum. And for some reason, I decided to, to put the whole pack of bubble gum into my mouth at once and I created this massive ball of, of goo. And then I decided to see what it was like to be blind. And I kid you not, I took the, the, the wadge of gum and I spread it over my eyebrows and I, into my eyelashes and, I, and I, I kind of molded it into my eyelashes and my eyes were glued shut. It was, it was amazingly effective. <laughs> and um, for about 10 seconds, I, I kind of enjoyed this. I couldn't get it off and I thought, yeah, this is what it's like to be blind. And then I panicked because it was terrible. Um, I was crashing around, I couldn't see anything, I fell over, I was screaming and crying. And... Um, my poor mum came rushing in. She left me alone for just a moment and there was a scene of utter chaos. It is a terrible thing to be blind. I, I experienced it for just a few moments it took my mum to prise my eyelids apart after the chewing gum was taken off. But of course, people experience it for years and this particular man had experienced it for a lifetime. Terrible. I think it was on Tuesday night, Lauren and I were driving back from, from somewhere and uh, we looked up and we were treated to the most spectacular sunset. I think some of you might have seen it looking around um, on Tuesday evening. It was a stunning sky full of uh, flames and pink and there was a deep blue of the sky behind, slate, uh, dramatic sun rays coming through. It was just gorgeous, stunning. And we just paused to look up and go, wow. Of course, this man had never seen a sunset. He'd never seen color. He had never seen a smile. He had no idea what his parents looked like. He was locked into a world of utter darkness, reduced to begging for survival. And so when we read, this man came home seeing, don't miss how big this is. But as so often is the case in John's gospel, something even bigger is going on. Remember, Jesus just said, I am the light of the world. That's the claim We'll hear the gift of sight to this blind man is the evidence to back up the claim. It's a sign pointing us to something even greater about Jesus, pointing to the fact that he is actually God himself, for only God has the kind of power that can knit optical nerves together and heal broken retinas in a man who had never seen before. Well, there's the portrait of Jesus etched for us on the pages of history for us to examine and to engage with. I wonder what we see as we look at the portrait. 
Remember, our question this morning is, why is it that some people look at Jesus and see beauty and glory, and other people look at him and see nothing? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the responses to Jesus, for he actually steps back now for quite a while. We have quite a few verses where Jesus is not around at all, and we have the reactions to Jesus. And first, I want to look at this man who was once blind. You can imagine him the day after the healing, walking down to the local shops, down to co-op to get some uh, bread. And you can imagine the neighbors who had seen him begging for years, nudging one another, saying, yeah, w- w- hang on, w- w- what's happening? Verse 8, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Uh, some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. I can understand the confusion. The change is so remarkable, so out of this world, that people just can't quite grasp that it could be the same guy. And yet he says, I am. It's me. Now, if we press the pause button just at this point, can this man see yet? Well, yes, he can physically. He's got eyes that work now. He can look around and see the shops and the neighbors. But can he see that Jesus is the light of the world? I don't think so. He has a name, Jesus, verse 11, but not much more than that. Well, let's continue. The man then gets questioned by the local Jewish establishment, the Pharisees, but he sticks to his guns. Yes, I was healed, he says. And so in verse 17, he calls Jesus a a prophet, which is true, perhaps sign of growing sight. There's another round of questioning. I love his response in verse 30. He plays the kind of first century equivalent of uh, the game 20 questions. Uh, You know how the game goes, 20 questions. You've got a a character. You don't know who it is. You don't know their identity. And so you ask lots of carefully scripted questions to narrow down the the options until you have one person who who it must be. And this man is kind of doing that from verse 30 onwards. Well, it's not quite questions he's asking. It's more facts that he's stating. But look at how he thinks through the issues. Verse 30, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. So fact one, the man knows that his eyes have been opened. Then there's verse 31. Uh, We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Uh, There's fact two, God only works with godly people. Then there's verse 32, Uh, No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Fact three, this kind of work is beyond human ability. Humans cannot create new eyes. And so the conclusion comes, verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you see how this once blind man how he's thinking about this. He's working through the evidence. He's following the trail. Uh, His perception of Jesus is not based on a kind of a gut reaction or a sense that he has. No, he's thinking through the facts. What has he seen? What's happened? What must it mean about Jesus? And this is always how the Bible invites people to have faith in Jesus. Not by a hunch or a gut feeling, but by engaging with the facts of history. And then finally, this once blind man finds himself face to face with Jesus. And he's asked one further question. Verse 35, Jesus asks, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Seems like a slightly sort of obscure question. If we know John's gospel well, we'll know that the Son of Man is a title that John uses very sparingly for Jesus. It is a significant title. We find it used in John 12 when the crowds are asking about Jesus and the Son of Man. And in John 12, verse 34, Jesus explains that the Son of Man is the one who must come and be lifted up and die on a cross for the sins of the world. In John's gospel, the Son of Man is the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth by dying on the cross, bringing forgiveness of sins, bringing a God who's angry with the world back to the world through forgiveness and reconciliation. And Jesus says to the man born blind, do you believe in that kind of person who can bring that kind of spiritual healing between God and the world? The man is desperate to know, verse 36. Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says, in effect, verse 38, it's me. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And I think at that point, the man truly sees. The work of God in this man's life that Jesus promised back in verse 3 did include a physical healing to demonstrate the power and identity of Jesus. But we now realize that the work of God had a much bigger scope than just physical healing. Jesus wanted to open the the spiritual eyes of this man so that he could see that there was indeed a savior in the world who could put things right between God and man, the son of man. That is why he came into the world, verse 39, so that the blind can see. Well, there is one reaction to Jesus, a man who who tracks down the evidence, he follows the logic, he keeps on chasing Jesus, and eventually he truly sees who Jesus is. And there will be many here this morning who have experienced something similar in your own lives. Perhaps we've read a gospel account of Jesus. We've, we've, we've uh, traced through the implications. We've engaged with the history of it. And we've come to encounter the risen Lord Jesus who has made a way between humans and God. And if that is us this morning, if our eyes are open to Jesus and we see beauty as we gaze at John 9, well, we should be like the man who bows down and worships before the light of the world. But we should also remember that just as this man was once blind and helpless, so we too were once blind and helpless before God began to work in us. If we can see the beauty of Jesus, let us not become big-headed as if it was down to our own effort. Rather, we should be humble recognizing that it is the Lord Jesus who has been at work in us to open our eyes and to help us see. And notice that it was in and through opposition that this man's sight was sharpened and clarified. It was as the Jews gave him a hard time about what had happened that he kept on pushing forward and engaging with the evidence and he came to a, a much clearer view of Jesus. And I think as we think about our own Uh, experience of being a Christian, we may well experience times of opposition. Perhaps we think of a young Christian heading out in life. We we worry for them, thinking there's so much coming at them 
that will test them and push them. But here we see that if the Lord is at work in people's lives, he can actually use opposition and um, people pushing against the gospel to help us have a clearer vision of Jesus. Well, that's one reaction to Jesus. But of course, there is another reaction to Jesus, and it is a very different reaction. And we come now to the Jews, the Pharisees. And we need to see this. It's so important for us to see it, that just as the man who was once blind pursued a methodical exploration of the facts, so the Jews also pursued a methodical exploration of the facts. They're very careful about how to investigate what's happened. Uh, They want to find out how this man was healed. And so they ask around. They ask the man. Uh, And there's a problem with how he was healed because it involves some mud, some spit, making some paste, and then some washing. And you see, the way that the Jews classified the law, that kind of activity was classified as work. And so the Jews discovered that Jesus had to work in order to heal. And so verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You can see the logic. And so verse 18, the Jews did not believe that the man had been healed by Jesus. They just couldn't accept it. Then they have a quick chat with the parents and they discover that actually, yes, the man was born blind and now he can see. So something's happened not quite sure what. Then the Jews turn once again to the once blind man and the temperature is being raised. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who was, had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. In other words, they want the man to recount how Jesus worked to um, condemn Jesus and to make it easy to write him off as someone who breaks God's law. And when the once blind man persists in saying that Jesus is God, or from God at least, well, verse 34, they cannot stand it and they throw him out. In other words, the Jews conclude from their investigation that Jesus is a sinner and that this once blind man is not worth listening to at all. So why is their conclusion so different from the once blind man? Well, I think uh, two things jump out of this episode. Uh, Two ways in which they conduct their research. Uh, Did you notice how they began their research? Their starting point about Jesus. We get a little clue in verse 22. Uh, John gives us a little background comment. Uh, His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Do you see, the Jews had already decided their view about Jesus. Even before they investigated what had happened, they had a prejudged, predetermined position about Jesus. I think they had the wrong starting point for their investigation uh, a few months ago, um, we got some chest of drawers from Ikea. Now, before you think, say, oh, I know where this story is going, let me say I did follow the instructions. Um, I was a good boy. 
I got everything laid out carefully on the floor. I got the uh, instruction manual. I read it. I got all my bits and pieces lined up. And then I started to build. But partway through the build, things weren't lining up. The holes didn't match. I got my drill out and started making a few you know, extra holes. But it just wasn't working. I didn't know why until I had to dismantle everything. And I realized that I'd got the very first two pieces the wrong way around, left and right, confused. And when you get the starting point wrong, it doesn't matter what you do next. The end result doesn't work out. And see, I think these Pharisees had got the starting point wrong. They wouldn't even entertain in their thoughts that Jesus might be God. They wouldn't even go there. They'd already decided that he couldn't be. And from that basis, they proceeded to investigate. And when you begin that way with your investigation, things always go wrong. Uh, the same thing happens today. Uh, this is how people talk all around us. I've heard it so many times. They say, I don't believe there is a God. Then they look around for evidence to support that position. When they come to the miracles of Jesus, they say, these things could not have happened because there is no God. And so the way that they understand the miracles rules out a conclusion that there is a God. It happens again and again. That's the wrong starting point. The other reason why the Pharisees come to such a different conclusion is their finishing point. Uh, When faced with a living witness who would not back down on his account of a miracle, what do they do? Keep looking, keep investigating, keep weighing up. No, they chucked him out. We've had enough. We don't want to hear any more of what you have to say. And they stopped there. End of investigation. They didn't come to a conclusion. They didn't find a way to get all the, all the facts together in a way which made sense. They just shut down the conversation. Imagine watching your favorite Poirot murder mystery one evening. You tucked in on a warm, uh, on, a, on a winter's night and you're, you're watching Poirot. There's been a terrible murder and uh, he's investigating all the witnesses and he quizzes various people. He's gathering all the clues, getting it all pieced together. And you know how it works. There's that final moment when everyone's in the sitting room and Poirot is pacing around d- describing what he's discovered. And you know that in a moment he's going to say, and therefore, because of all the witnesses, witnesses and evidence, it's, but imagine that that moment never comes. He says, oh, I've got lots of evidence and I've got lots of uh, interviews But you know what? I just can't be bothered going the final step and piecing it all together. Do you know what? I can't be bothered talking to you anymore. I'm just going to go back to Belgium, whatever it is. Um, End of of investigation. It would be deeply dissatisfying, wouldn't it? But you see, many people do that with Jesus. They engage with uh, John's gospel. They look at the miracles. They start to think through what it might mean. They, They engage with the evidence. But at some point, they just stop looking. They cop out and close down the discussion. I've seen it happen again and again. People perhaps come on a Christianity Explored course for a few weeks and they they really engage, but then they just get busy and they don't come back. They don't think it through to the end. Uh, Perhaps people come to church for a few weeks and they enjoy listening to the sermons about Jesus, but then when life is busy, they just put down the thoughts and they don't finish it. That seems to me what the Pharisees do. They have this outstanding miracle. They can't understand but they just shut down their investigation and they stop they don't end in the right place well as we come to a close I want to speak to two kinds of people if I may this morning Uh, perhaps there are some here who look at Jesus and 
All you see is a, a plain man making impossible and irrele- um, irrelevant claims. You certainly don't look at him and go, yep, that's the light of the world. Well, can I encourage you to be skeptical about your skepticism? You see, when it comes to art, Mona Lisa, it doesn't really matter how I feel about whether it's a masterpiece or not. It doesn't affect my life. But when it comes to the person of Jesus, it is deeply and profoundly personal. If there really is a God, then he has lots to say about you and your world and your future. And the stakes are very high. Be skeptical about your skepticism. Have you written them off too quickly because you don't want to engage with the scale of his claims? And I wonder, what's your starting point and your end point for thinking about Jesus? Have you allowed in your thinking the possibility that Jesus might be God? And have you followed the evidence through to the end? If you haven't, why not get a copy of John's Gospel? You can find a copy in the church Bibles. I'll have some at the end at the back. And read through for yourself again, asking the question, could this really be God? And be open to the possibility there might be others here this morning who are a bit like the man's parents. You know that something's gone on. Something's happened. And perhaps you believe that Jesus is and has done miracles. But you're scared to join up the dots. And you're scared about the implications for what other people might think of you if you actually put into practice what you believe. Perhaps you're worried that people at work might make fun of you because you believe that there is a light of the world. Perhaps you're worried that your family, your friends won't understand you because you say, I believe in Jesus. Well, I think John 9 shows us that we should not be scared or intimidated by intelligent, rational people who dismiss Jesus. Don't be scared by them. And I think John 9 also shows us that we have far more to gain than we might lose in standing up and following Jesus. It is much better to walk in the light than in the dark, for the light that Jesus brings is the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have this account before us this morning of this remarkable encounter between Jesus and a very mixed bunch of people. Father, we thank you for the glory we have seen revealed in the power of Jesus, able to bring healing where there is brokenness. And we thank you most of all that that same man was willing to go and to be lifted up on a cross to die for the sins of the world to make a way for the world to come back to you. Father, please, would you delight us afresh with this light of the world? Would you humble us? And if our eyes are not yet opened, we would pray that you would, in your kindness, bring light where there is blindness. Amen.